Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks Map of the Maze. I'm your producer Richard Aliff. We have a very interesting episode this month which we recorded at the end of 2019. We are joined by Chris Merry, CEO of Stonehaven Fleming. Previously, Chris was CEO at IPES, who provide back office services to private equity houses and their funds. IPES itself was PE backed before Chris and his team completed the trade sale of the business. As I'm sure you can imagine, running a business that helps manage the inner workings of a PE fund while simultaneously managing its own investors has given Chris an extremely comprehensive and unique perspective on the industry. It's a fascinating peek behind the private equity curtain. Now, over to Sam and Chris. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. So I'm joined by Chris Mary this morning. Chris is the CEO of Stonehaven Fleming, which is an independent family office uh, advising on 55 billion of, of assets uh, for about 250 high net worth families and others who you serve from 11 offices across international geographies. And the business is backed by Caledonia Investments. And it's a new job for you, isn't it? You're, you you landed just about three or four months ago. Having This is your second CEO role in private equity ownership, having very successfully led IPIS uh, for Silverfleet Capital over a four or five year period, uh, exiting was it this time last year, or was it was it actually this year? So the exit, the exit uh, in terms of completion was this year, January this year. Uh, we did the deal in May, May last year, and we had eight months to uh, wait for the regulators to come through. So it was quite a long process in the end, but uh, it was this year. Uh, and you're right, yes, Stonehenge Fleming, a multi-family office, but we provide. A, a very wide range of services to international families who, who you know, span um, different jurisdictions, different generations, uh, and have a, a variety of different uh, uh, needs, places where we can help them. So, you know, in, in an ideal uh, situation where, where we're at our best, we'll be you know, fully embedded uh, within the family, advising them on how they govern themselves, uh, how they manage uh, passing wealth between generations, uh, how, how they you know, structure themselves as they move uh, and different generations move between countries right through to then um, acting as their investment uh, manager uh, and, and investment advisor. So mm-hmm. it's a, a very wide-ranging role, yeah, very, very interesting. We span a number of different uh, geographies um, uh, and it's an interesting yeah, sector. I think as uh, the world focuses on, on wealth and what wealth is for, there's a very interesting role to play in helping families think think through that. And uh, yeah, a key part of our work is around purpose of wealth you know having uh, you know run a successful business sold a successful business and most of our clients were originally you know very very successful entrepreneurs then yeah what what's the purpose of that money what do you do with it uh, how, how do you turn towards uh, you know philanthropy or, or you know other other purpose as well as protecting your family over a longer period of time mm-hmm. and you help them towards philanthropy too? Uh, yes, so, so we, we have a variety of different services within our teams and uh, most, mostly it's around yeah, helping and helping and guiding, so helping that thought process in particular as mm-hmm. to, yeah, and, and we've done quite a lot of research uh, within the business um, around the, you know, the purpose of wealth. 
which yeah. I've, as I've come in, I found extremely interesting. <laughs> so um, for the purpose of this this podcast, we're actually going to focus most of our attention on IPIS. Um, you took it through the exit last year to a trade by Apex Group. Correct, yeah. For 3.9 times return. Yeah, for Silverfleet. 30% IRR. IRR. Correct. So an incredible yeah. deal. It, well, you just said something there which made me, you know, what what, what is it like... You've agreed the deal, and you referred to the competition commission, and then you've got to, you've got to sit there for eight months mm. to it's, get to, to gain yeah, approval. And you're yeah. like, I mean, that must be. It's quite tricky. So yes, you're right. You've, you've done the deal. Fantastic. Everyone's very happy. Uh, and see, our, our deal. The, the only conditionality around the deal was uh, approval from five different regulators. Uh, and there's a number of you know, challenges to, to, to that. Regulators um, tend to work at their you know, own speed, so that they'll, they'll work through whatever process uh, they, they need. And in a financial services business, that's just you know, part, part of what you, what you do. Uh, but the regulatory applications are made by the buyer. So, so the, the buyer is applying to uh, be approved to take over the shares. Uh, which means that as as the seller, uh, you have uh, you know, very little involvement in the process. So not only is it the process taking a lot of time uh, for someone who likes to kind of be in control of everything, get on. You're not you're not you're not in control of it. You're not even anywhere near it. It's very very hard to see in some cases with some um, regulators uh, what's happening. So you, you put in your regulatory application. Uh, you 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 know, try to make sure you give them all the information they need up front. They will probably ask some questions, but. Uh, they don't necessarily have a, a clear timetable or, uh, as it were, kind of service protocol to say when they'll give you, give you an answer. Uh, so it's a, com- it's a really tricky combination because you've announced to your, to your teams that you know, the businesses have been sold, this is a great thing, got a fantastic new owner, but I don't know when it's going to happen. But they don't actually uh, own us yet. But they don't actually own us yet. So for, as CEO, uh, a huge amount of your, your job um, just doesn't exist anymore. So anything to do with strategy, uh, forward planning, uh, to a certain extent you know, re- reporting to the board, uh, diminishes massively because the, you know, the strategy is very much up to the, up to the new owner. Uh, you want to make sure that you're keeping the new owner informed, although in a, in a regulated business, of course, they can't have any uh, um, part in the decision-making because you have to make sure that you're, you're doing your job properly in relation to the regulator. So it's a kind of... Yeah, really rather awkward limbo situation. Uh, and and I, I must say, I, I found that eight months um, you know, one of the most difficult periods uh, because uh, you, 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 have, you, you have to kind of walk this you know, slightly, slightly difficult balance between new owners to be kept informed, who you solidly believe will be the new owners, and, and you know, current uh, management, current regulatory responsibilities, which you have to you know, make sure you discharge in mm. full and, and properly. But you've, you've got to get the, keep the business performing. Yeah, yeah. To to the plan, haven't you? I mean, if if what was ta- what would what would happen if the business performance dropped back? Would the deal then be renegotiated? Uh, I think uh, that depends on each individual. In, in, our, in our deal, the only conditionality was the regulatory approvals. So, so there was no no conditionality. So, if your performance had dropped, it, you, the same price. Yeah, absolutely right. Right. Okay. Uh, of course, we absolutely did our best to make sure it carried on performing. Yeah. But yeah, if if, if it had uh, not performed, or if there had been some kind of crisis, uh, that that was not a condition for completion, mm-hmm. which was good. Yeah. Um, 
So it completed uh, so and then you came out fairly quickly? Uh, I actually left on the day of uh, completion. The so nature of a trade <laughs> trade acquisition. <laughs> exactly. So we, we uh, yeah, talked talk with Apex as, as uh, yeah, whether there was any uh, yeah, role that uh, either they might want me to do or, or, or might fit. Uh, I think you know, running a part of a larger business is very different from being CEO. Yeah. Having been CEO for about 15 years, I think it would have been quite quite difficult for me to not be CEO. Very difficult. So, uh, yeah. so I was quite happy that uh, I, would, I would hand over and um, you know, pass pass the business on to the new owners and you know, look then for the next thing. Yeah. So um, IPIS was invested in by Silver. Silverfleet Silver, Silver yeah. in 2013. Yes, 2013, August 2013. Uh, but you were hired post investment, right? Yes. And was was did they hand you a plan and say, okay, Chris, here's here's our investment strategy. This is what you want we want you to do. Off you go, get on with it. Or was it okay? We need to, we need just to reset here and get aligned in terms of, you know, where the value creation plan sits. It, uh, it was really a combination of, uh, of both. So you know, no one had been sort of sitting around doing nothing. There was a, a plan as to what the business could could do. Uh, it was a business that was, was incredibly well placed in terms of its macroeconomic position, its market. So uh, from, from a, a market position, uh, a very fragmented market. This is um, providing you know, back office services to private equity funds effectively. So, yeah, accounting. <laughs> so you're the man that knows all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> What's really going on? <laughs> so yeah, accounting, reporting, compliance, um, holding board meetings, reporting to investors, moving moving money around. Uh, so everything to do with supporting a fund and and all the kind of uh, carry vehicles and holding vehicles and special purpose vehicles uh-huh. that go 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 around. It. So you you were looking after what everyone across the private equity spectrum, lower mid market. Mega market. Uh, we didn't uh, do much in mega market, so our, our sweet spot was definitely mid mid market, mid market and lower lower mid market. Um, UK or uh, Europe. So so very very broad coverage uh, across Europe. Uh, and as as we got into yeah, my period of being CEO, uh, a number of US clients as well, particularly as the European regulations impinged on US funds raising money in Europe. So we ended up doing quite a lot of reporting for the US funds as well. Yeah. So quite a, quite a spread. What um, might be quite interesting for us is just for you to give us a very quick whistle stop of the private equity uh, firm's obligations to its institutional investors, otherwise known as, as LPs. Yeah. Um, so we go out and raise a fund, pep talks, private, private equity, but you know, we raise 300 million, 400 million fund we have an obligation then back to those institutions and there are a number of them who've invested in the 400 million fund what are they what are they what are they obliged to do so it's around generally around reporting so there'll there'll be for for most a fairly comprehensive system of quarterly reporting so all all of our activity was hinged around uh, quarters Uh, so financial reporting was part of the quarterly report uh, there would be annual reporting around you know, audit, audited accounts and performance. But it That's was, the value of the biz, of the portfolio. They're reporting on the portfolio performance quarterly. Uh, yes, they're reporting on the portfolio performance quarterly, but they're they're also you know, re- reporting on any any kind of activity within it. So any any investments made, mm-hmm. any investments realised. Uh, so it's it's a full kind of activity report showing the accounts for for the fund. 
uh, along the way, there's uh, different levels of approval that are needed to make an investment. Uh, and what happens now is that most uh, private equity funds will seek a commitment from investors. The old days where you, you raise a fund, you collect the cash and you wait to spend it. At, is that at what gold. happened in the old days? Uh, if, yeah. we go, if we raise 400 million, we would have 400 million uh, I think somewhere. Right, right at the beginning, yes, there, were, there was some money sitting there waiting to be spent. But uh, Now it's drawn down, now isn't it's it? drawn down. So, so, so basically you, you will tell your uh, LPs that you're about to make an investment uh, which will fit within uh, you know, what the funds per so you draw up you know, what the fund is allowed to invest in so you'll, you'll raise money based on either a particular sector or a particular size of business so you'll have found a, a business which fits those criteria uh, and you will then need the, the uh, LPs to send you the money so that you can pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, Where so does the money sit in the LPs? Do they have to sort of ring fence it somewhere? So it, it, it's a, a variety of plan. Yeah, one of the interesting yeah, challenges the LDLPs, um, you know, a variety of different types of uh, investor. But once you, you know, becoming more and more institutional in terms of investment into private equity, their, their job is to deploy the cash. Uh, so they don't want to have you know, cash sitting there. And actually, one of the one of the interesting challenges in the last couple of years, uh, where where um, private equity funds were doing well and making lots of exits, was they kept giving money back to the LPs, and the LPs then had to do something with it. We don't want it. So <laughs> don't put it somewhere else. They want to keep deploying it. So private equity becoming um, increasingly uh, uh, yeah, an increasing allocation of money. Yeah. So so the LPs wanted to allocate you know more money, but then being given money back wasn't really very helpful. Uh, so, you know, deploying the money is, is definitely a challenge for the, for the funds. So you've got the commitment, uh, you, you, you will draw the money down when you need it, but recognising that you know, as an investor, once you've decided I want to you know, in, in, you know, allocate this many millions to private equity, you don't want to have that cash sitting around, you want to deploy it and put it to work. Mm. So there's a sort of you know, tension there. The money, the money absolutely has to be available, but something has to happen to the money uh, before before it's deployed as well. What are the what are the um, carry and co-invest um, vehicles then? Are they, do they how do they make it? So, so a carry a carry vehicle is is where where the uh, investment manager, the private equity fund manager's team, uh, in, invest their own money. Uh, well, there's carry and co-invest, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so two different two different yeah. things. So, so uh, carry is is you know, directly that that's the investment of the people in the private equity manager themselves. So if you're a partner in a private equity yeah. uh, fund manager, uh, you, you will be expected to invest alongside the um, LPs, and that investment can go through a, a carry vehicle, which is just a, a, a pooled vehicle for them to be able to make the investment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. Um, again, it's not sitting, you don't have to. Again, it can be it, it can be on a fund basis. So so if, if you're investing in, uh, in the fund, uh, you will be you know, investing at the same time as as uh, the, the institutional investors, so uh, you know, the money will be drawn down at, at, at the same at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So a fund very distinct to, to a deal by deal basis. So you know, the, the the commitment is made at the start, uh, and, and you will put the money into the fund as it's needed, and the fund will buy the, the portfolio companies. Uh, when the portfolio companies are sold, the money comes back into the fund, and then uh, depending on where it is in the cycle, gets gets given back to to the investors. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, it's more, more much more than they 
started with. Mm -hmm. Co-investment was uh, something is something completely different to say that uh, uh, if, if a fund is investing in portfolio companies uh, but wants to have more firepower, uh, then it, it can ask uh, whether investors want to deploy more money to particular deals. Uh, so if you just take a simple example, if a, if a fund typically invests in yeah, 100 million pound deals, but uh, you know, spots a 150 million pound deal that looks uh, attractive, uh, it can suggest to the LPs that they might want to add to what they put in the fund on uh, at the basis of this deal uh, and set up a, a co-investment vehicle to invest alongside the fund and therefore do a bigger deal. Mm. Uh, so it's a different way of, of, in, of investing. Uh, it can be attractive to the, the LPs because uh, you know, generally the, the, the fee structures on a co-investment vehicle are lighter than on the fund it, it's, itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's an extra kind of variant. Um, you know, wonderful news for the um, administrators like IPERS because it's an extra layer of complication. So you don't just have to administer the fund, you have to administer the co-investment vehicles as well. Uh, so the, the work of uh, the, the, the uh, administrator yeah, increased as the complexity increased over time. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, there's, they need they have to use your services or somebody like your services. Yeah, so the, the find um, most of the certainly mid-market uh, private equity managers have a, a limited back office team. Mm -hmm. There's uh, still you know, a, a few uh, in London who will maintain their own administration teams, but most of them have outsourced the administration. Uh, and you, you find that the investors, the LPs, are also uh, very keen on, on outsourcing. So it's a very classic sort of specialisation idea. You know, you're really good at doing deals, finding portfolio companies, looking after their performance. You do that. Why don't you get an expert, a specialist, to do the administration uh, and, and as regulation increased particularly you know, with the European uh, directives coming in then you know, FATCA and CRS the reporting standards uh, getting more and more complex more different regulations across different countries uh, again so that that expertise is difficult to maintain in a small team in a mid-market private equity uh, fund manager get the scale from from the administrators which mm -hmm. is why yeah, the number of administrators has, has increased and the and the sector has been one seeing a lot of consolidation mm. yeah and you've prof you've you've ridden the wave of lp interest in private equity investment and private private equity deliver a much higher return on average than public markets yes yeah, so, so the, the, the stats all show that over, over a you know, 10 or 15 year period there's uh, at least a couple of percentage uh, points gap in terms of return uh, private markets compared to public markets hmm. uh, so yes there was as i said you know, there being a kind of macro position around uh, you know ipes saying it's a, a sector which um, is fragmented and consolidating that's great but it's a customer base where the assets are uh, in, in increasing and the complexity of the work is increasing i.e more regulation therefore more more for the administrator to do both in terms of quantity of funds and quantity of money and quantity of work because of the regulation that reporting so from a business perspective it's a great model perfect yeah uh, how uh, did you feel that you had to adapt quite significantly to to private equity this for this first time this was it was it did it feel like a different playing field to you i mean you'd run other businesses yeah, in the past so, successfully so, uh, i'd run two public companies and one company owned by individuals um, I think the, the, the commonality in terms of you know, if there's a theme, as, as CEO, you must always be very aware of your shareholder. 
Uh, so, so what what do your share, shareholder or shareholders uh, want? How do they behave? What are your obligations? What are people thinking, as it were, on, on the other side of the table? And I think that's a, as as true in in public markets as it is in private markets. Uh, but the, the shareholders then you know, do have a different way of thinking. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think that yes, there's absolutely a certain degree of needing to to adapt. But uh, I, I would hope I was. Uh, receptive to the idea of having to understand the shareholder and the shareholders' needs and what, what they were looking for. You get much more interaction with your uh, shareholder generally in a, a private com company than a public company. So you had uh, Whitehead Man and RSM10 and the two public companies I ran. Uh, it's, it was half yearly results as relatively small public companies. Uh, so twice a year you had a, you know, a roadshow reporting if you were raising money, which I did with uh, Whitehead Man again, uh, a roadshow and reporting. Uh, but they're not there sitting on your board uh, every, every month. So with, with IPES, we had uh, a fairly, fairly common model, uh, two of the Silverfleet partners on, on our board. Uh, we had monthly board meetings, uh, so very regular interaction with, with your shareholder. Uh, very regular information flows, uh, so you know, providing monthly accounts uh, and uh, quite an extensive uh, board pack. As a public company, you're providing information uh, at uh, uh, you know, six monthly intervals, but in anything that you, you announce in a public company is you know, by, by definition public. So, so you, you've got a set of rules to uh, make sure you, you know, disclose information evenly to, uh, to everybody at the same time to everybody. With, with, a, with a private company, uh, you, you make sure you pass the information on when needed and, and, at, and at regular intervals. So a lot around uh, yeah, keeping the, the shareholder informed. Uh, so uh, you know, the, the mantra, as always, is you know, make sure there's no surprises. Uh, so don't wait, don't wait for a monthly board meeting to pass on a, a piece of crucial information or tell them if something's changed. Uh, make sure you pass on that information straight away. So much more regular interaction. Uh, and then I think it, it is fair to say that there's a, there's a, a much more uh, yeah, sophisticated financial view from a, a, a private equity shareholder, uh, and, and they, they they have ways of looking at uh, how um, yeah, financial uh, modelling, financial reporting, uh, you know, I suppose the, the 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 building blocks of financial uh, value creation come come together, and that's very much at the forefront of the mind all, all of the time. Mm -hmm. Which the value creation plan. So, what 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 was what was yours? I mean, how how it's obviously worked incredibly well, more than the three times money return. Um, how did you do that? I think there were a number of elements to it, and, and certainly, yeah, financial performance and sustainable financial performance is a, is a key part of that. Uh, but but uh, I think the IPES story has also got a lot to do with having a very robust uh, business and uh, being, being one that uh, was very well prepared for a, a change of ownership. So the, the, the financial performance, I think it's, it's really trying to see you know, where you think the business needs to be going in terms of direction. Uh, I wouldn't describe it because I don't think it's right as, you know, kind of having the business peak for sale uh, because you always want to have a momentum in the business so that uh, it's attractive to uh, you know, the buyer. I think mean, you know, buyers are, are uh, you know, looking for a business that is performing and is going to continue to perform and, and to be able to, to an extent, prove that that continued performance can, can be achieved. 
so we, we spend a lot of time trying to look at uh, you know, the fundamentals of, of, of the business and, and the metrics that you know, really, really mattered uh, and in, in a business that is uh, it really just you know, people providing services. Your, your biggest cost is uh, people costs. Um, uh, you know, IPES, like many businesses, ran with about, about half of our costs were, were, were people uh, related. Uh, you, you've, you've then got uh, a number of costs which are pretty much fixed, like rent and building costs, uh, and uh, not not a huge amount left over. So if you can get your your team structures correct, if you can get your uh, people costs under control and, and be reasonably confident in your revenue, you should have an a strong idea of how the business is going to perform. Uh, so we had clear ideas on the margin that we were targeting, uh, and as we modelled forward the things that we needed to do to to achieve that, that margin. Uh, and I think a crucial thing for us was rec recognising that um, yeah, the, the business, having, having you know, grown fast from its formation, um, you know, I guess 22 years ago uh, now, but uh, had reached a point where it, it needed to change. And, and we did a huge amount of work about two years before we uh, sold around uh, looking at all of our processes, looking at how we did things, uh, seeing how we could become more efficient, really, really you know, looking at uh, both our systems and our processes to say, are, are the changes uh, that, that need to be made to really ensure that this business runs as efficiently as possible. Mm. And you took cost out through that process? So we took cost out through, through that process, absolutely. Uh, and, and it was very much around you know, getting, getting more uh, you know, from our existing teams mm. uh, so, so that we could grow without necessarily adding any, any more cost. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, uh, if I look at the different sort of elements of, of, of how we kind of grew the business. There, there was a, you know, a, a good deal of focus around uh, clients and client quality. So we started, everything we did, we started with trying to understand well, yeah, what the clients wanted, to understand how we delivered that, to make sure we delivered it at a, a, a level of quality which was uh, sustainable and built the relationships. And particularly that we delivered the whole firm to, to clients. So we, we moved very much from a, a, an office and geographic structure to uh, a, a you know, single single business uh, with, with lines of uh, different service within mm -hmm. it. How many uh, different services did you have? So we ended up with, uh, I, I guess you'd call it um, either either three or four. We had the core administration, uh, we had the depository service, which was uh, yeah, de delivered um, in, in, to meet regulation, uh, and we had the regulatory reporting service around FATCA and, and, and CRS. We then started to introduce uh, uh, what we called the ID register, which was an automated anti-money laundering checking service as, as, as well. So that was that Was, was, that, um, the new, was that the only new product and service? So that, from when I started, the depository was a new service, FANCA reporting, CRS reporting right. was a new, a new service, and then uh, the... So sort of cross-selled and up, up Yes, exactly. So about um, 20 to 25% of our revenue when we sold was new services from when Silverfleet bought in yeah. 2013. So service extension uh, and uh, working with existing clients was, was crucial. Increasing the value of a client. Yes, exactly. And, and I think what, what um, I, I focused on very strongly was uh, making sure that we really knew where the value lay. And you're right, the value lay in the existing clients. So what, what you know, a successful administrator will always 
be appointed the administrator to the next fund, will always be appointed the administrator to the next carry vehicle or, or the next co-investment vehicle, uh, and, and when a new requirement like uh, the AF and reporting comes along, we'll also be able to step into providing that new, new, new service. So, so the mantra we had was very much that yeah, business development started with keeping the existing clients happy because you know, we could see that about two-thirds of our new business every year came from existing clients. Uh, and many businesses will get kind of very excited about landing a new client and yeah. uh, you know, celebrate the brand new client more than the extension of, of, of work from the existing client. Uh, we, we went a long way to, to recognising how valuable the existing clients were mm -hmm. and how important it was to keep them on board. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, as you went through the the investment cycle, you um, changed chair, actually, yes, didn't you? Yes. So you've got some, you've got some insight into appointing, or well, the process by which a CEO should appoint a new chair and how involved you should be in that process. So I think I think the the chair relationship uh, is absolutely vital. I mean, it's vital in any company, but I think it's uh, it's probably even more important in private equity. Uh, there's yeah, quite often you get a description of a sort of a triangle. If you've got the you know the chairman, the CEO, and the shareholder, and that triangle needs to you know work incredibly well for the company to be successful. Uh, so when, so when we came to uh, appoint a new chair, we we drew up a job description, uh, and I worked with Silverfleet to draw up that job description. And, and, and make sure that the different elements of uh, that, that triangle could be successfully deployed. Uh, so, so for me, I wanted someone who was experienced in chairing a board. Uh, so that sounds kind of obvious, but uh, you know, cha chairing a board, managing that, that sort of almost set-piece process is important. Mm. Uh, I wanted someone who had chaired a private equity board before, so had the private equity experience, mm. uh, and, and ideally had been through an exit, an exit process. Um, uh, and I wanted someone who, yeah, ideally understood a people business, but didn't didn't have to have background in administration or or, or, or that kind of expertise. It was very much the chair skills. So to be able to you know, work effectively with me, with the private equity owners, uh, Silverfleet, to chair to chair the board, to understand the different pressures that uh, apply. And I don't mean just pressures on management, but pressures on uh, you know the, the, the private equity team as well to understand both both sides of the table. So I think that that's ab absolutely vital, and I think the the industry expertise is uh, is one that um, uh, is is sometimes over overplayed. I remember recruiting board members at uh, RSM Tenant, the listed accounting firm, and the headhunter suggested we might like a few people with uh, accounting experience, which might well, I've got 2,500 accountants already, yeah. so could I have some different kind Don't of people on the board? Uh, and so it's really looking at the skills. So we then went, we, we worked through uh, an interview process, so I, I think we interviewed uh, five, five or six uh, people, so uh, I, I got um, fully involved in the interview process, so Sylvie interviewed, I interviewed, uh, we then you know, came up with our very very short list and uh, decided together on who should be appointed mm. and that kind of that chemistry between you know the, the CEO and the chairman is, is vital yeah, not, not not just um, you know to make sure the board works but if you if you are going to be under pressure and you'll never be under pressure at some time uh, to, to, to be able to work it through and have that kind of balance of understanding between the different points of view that's, in, that's interesting though, isn't it you, you delivered a full time return mm. more or less and uh, but there was inevitable pressure. Mm. Where, where did the pressure come for you? Because I mean, clearly the business was performing really well. You were in a very healthy market. 
very sticky revenue base and customer base, very high quality customer base. Um, I think where, where did the pressure come from? So, so first of all, don't forget it was a growing business. So IPES, when I uh, took over uh, 175 people, um, you know, four jurisdictions, but you know, re relatively quite a tiny business. So effectively still going through that transition from being owner-managed to being more yeah. know, corp corporately managed. Uh, we, we did a lot of change. So we, if I look back, and I, and I did at certain points look back, you could see we, we changed pretty much everything. So not just uh, you know, transforming our processes and uh, how we used our systems, but you know, we changed our accounting system, we changed how we did a, a, a appraisals, we changed everything to do with business development to make sure we focused on existing clients and looked to, to, the, to the long term. We changed all of our reporting to make sure we focused on the right uh, you know, performance indicators. So everywhere you looked, we'd made changes. Changes. Yeah, uh, and and you know to keep that pace in a small business, and we end up with about three hundred people, just to give you an idea of the the scale. So probably yeah, roughly doubled in size. But to keep that that um, yeah pace going and keep people's confidence as you make that much change, it inevitably brings some 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 pinch points. Mm. Uh, and uh, how did your chair help you in those? So the chair was very good in terms of yeah dialogue, I, I, I think, and uh, yeah un understanding where yeah if there's pressure on you know, the private equity team uh, that, that if they you know, um, ask uh, you know, questions in a certain way of the CEO or uh, you know, look for more information from, from the team, that the chair can you know, sometimes balance demands to make sure that everyone ends up prioritising. And occasionally to have those discussions as kind of you know, tripartite discussions rather than you know, direct. So mm -hmm. in, intervening to um, spend time with you know, sometimes the CEO and the shareholders separately, so you work through uh, you know, things that people might find you know, more imp more important or things that uh, might seem more, more urgent so that you all end up in, in, in the same place. Uh, and and you know, inevitably, of course, the, the shareholders are not in the business every day. Uh, you know, so the CEO, the CFO, we're all in the business every day see, seeing what's happening. Uh, and a combination of stepping back and being in the business can, can produce, as I said, different, different viewpoints which you need to work, work through. Mm -hmm. so I think it's very chair, subtle, isn't it? it, it yes, it is, it is very subtle. Uh, but I think if it, 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 the last thing you kind of want really is um, uh, yeah, emotion coming, <laughs> coming yeah. in. So, Some Zorro uh, fear, yeah, yeah. Zorro figure turning up, you know, with a... A white knight sorting everything out. That's the last thing you want, isn't yeah, it? As a last, chair, yes, you yes, want exactly. a very subtle approach. So, uh, but I think the chair, and, and this is where uh, yeah, Jim, Jim Falls, who was our, our chairman, judged it very well. Uh, a chair will know when he needs to kind of you know, move in and sit down and stick and stick in the, get into the business for a week, and when he think when that's complete. You know, waste of time and it needs to just let management get on with it. So yeah, recognising that balance, mm -hmm. recognising when an intervention uh, could be helpful, but probably more important, recognising when an intervention would be unhelpful is absolutely vital. So getting getting that balance. So I used to talk to Jim uh, you know, uh, once a week. We just have a, you know, if there's nothing to say, we you know, talk for five minutes. If there's a lot to say, we'd, we'd, we'd talk for half an hour or an hour. Uh, so I made sure I was constantly communicating with him uh, in, in between board meetings. Uh, 
uh, and then he, he would uh, update um, yeah, Silverfleet. So different, uh, you find that different private equity firms have yeah, a different style. So yeah, now with uh, Caledonia, uh, Caledonia prefer to have uh, a, a direct chat and pick up the phone. No chair? Uh, yes, we have um, uh, a new chair, John Connolly, the former um, senior partner of Deloitte. So mm -hmm. he, he and I will also talk um, yeah, every, every week. He'll come into the office generally once a week. Uh, but rather than, with the you know, Silfleet were very clear, they wanted me, me to talk to the chair and the chair to talk to them right. outside board meetings. So yeah, we settled into that system of communicating. Now I, I, I talk to both of them. Uh, it's another thing where you just sort of, you, you recognise what the share, what the different constituent uh, you know, stakeholders want mm. and, and try to make sure that you can then manage that and, and deliver what everyone needs. You have to adapt your communication style. Yes, I mean, communication yeah, is so key, isn't yes, it? Yes. And we're understanding what your investment partner wants and then communicate them in a way that feeds them with what they want. Yes, and not... Getting that wrong is... You know, can be can not, lead to not trouble. giving unnecessary information, but, yeah. also, but also not not missing information that they might consider to be vital. Yeah. Uh, and if you go back to uh, different elements that private equity will focus on, uh, yeah, there's there's yeah, financial analysis, the ability to feed results into their models so that they can report on up to their investment committees. There's sort of trigger points there that you you don't want to miss to make sure that they then have the information. That, that they need and, and can think about a business in the way that they will think about it. Mm -hmm. So we're getting, we're, we're leading up to the process of selling the business. Yes. Um, so how, uh, just talk us through uh, how you prepared your team and the business of operations and processes going into the exit. So I tried all the way through to make sure that the business was as robust as possible. Uh, so I think an important kind of mantra is to say that uh, you know the business must always be as strong as it can possibly be. You shouldn't be trying to you know, peak for a sale and then then come off the peak. Uh, when you're owned by private equity and, and owned in a private equity fund uh, as, as, as as we were. Effectively, everyone in the business knows it's going to be owned for somewhere between four and six years, and and, and then sold because that, and particularly if you're a business as we were, that is a private equity fund administrator. So all of our staff can see yeah. what all of our clients are doing and how long they hold on to business. And you are one of those. And we are one of those. The other, the other, yeah, extra uh, kind of perspective in in the IPES business. All of our competitors, of course, knew that we were owned by private equity and would love to tell our clients that we were about to be sold and everything was going to go hor horribly wrong. So, so you've got to keep the confidence of uh, the team, they, the team that knows you'll be sold at some stage, but not want them to be in any, and this is the, the entire team, not just the management team, not want people to be distracted by a sale process or fearful for their, for their, for their jobs or thinking there's sudden change going to come. So it's actually quite a, a delicate balance to keep, kind of keep the show on the road. Uh, but recognise the knowledge that people have. So, so we, we actually kept the, um, uh, the knowledge of the process to a very, very you know, small group of people. Uh, there, were, there was definitely a... How, how many? Uh, it was probably um, yeah, only, only, only three or four in addition to the board who were fully in, 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 in the process. Uh, it was quite, uh, to a sense, it was quite The amusing. board being yourself and the CFO me, and the chair. CFO, uh, chair and, and the, the investment sort of, partners. Sort of, sort of fleet partners. So there was, a, there was an awful lot of um, you know, gossip in, in, in the business and in, in the industry about IPES being, being for sale. 
uh, which, uh, yeah, back to the communication point, I decided to, to, to take head on. So uh, we referred to this as the elephant in the room. So to, to illustrate the elephant in the room, I went out and bought a big plastic blow-up elephant and took that into my office presentations so I could talk about you know, the elephant in the room uh, and described them, which uh, I think this, this did help. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a cycle, really, uh, in, in uh, you know, private equity ownership, which says that you're, you're never for sale. So a business goes through, uh, you know, it's never for sale, not for sale, not for sale, not for sale. And, and the only point that the business really is for sale is about you know, 10 seconds before you sign the contract. And as soon as you sign the contract, it's back to not being for sale. Mm. Uh, we've tried, tried to get, you know, the, again, it's back to the client base. So we'll, you know, look at your client base. Uh, when, when your clients are selling a portfolio company, do they announce to all the staff in the, that portfolio company that there's a sale process going on and the business is about to be sold? To which the answer is no. So what would you expect us to do? So trying to align our staff and the client uh, with their thinking about the clients and applying that thinking to us, so that they could say, well, yeah, general knowledge tells us that we're probably going to be set for sale and there probably is something going on, but kind of practical wisdom says that nobody's going to tell us about it, so we better just get on with life mm. and, and handle things as effectively as possible. Uh, so we try to get that balance correct, but also to make sure, in, in it's still a relatively small business, that we didn't take management time away. So, so when it when it came to you know, presenting to potential buyers, to dealing with uh, you know, the, the the investment bank Rothschilds, to you know, working with the due diligence providers, we kept it it, it very very tight in, in, indeed, and you know, didn't. Because uh, uh, I, I guess again, the, the last thing a, a portfolio company uh, wants to happen is to be clearly for sale and then have a self process fail for any reason, because mm. that really does damage value. Mm. But we prepared way ahead, so I think what, what uh, was, was instructive, uh, and, and I certainly would do again, is making sure that you're as robust as possible. So we thought we got the business in good shape, we thought we'd done a lot in terms of uh, process and control, uh, we thought we'd got the financials into the right, the right place. Uh, we then invited our you know, vendor due diligence providers in to kind of do a dry run about a year before uh, yeah. we, we, we'd kick the process off. So, so we focused on uh, compliance due diligence, financial due diligence and, and, and legal due diligence. Uh, we thought that the business was likely to be sold to a trade buyer, so a commercial due diligence um, wouldn't add much value. They would, right. all, they would all know the sector already. Uh, so, so, so we you know, did, did a, a dry run of uh, vendor due diligence, so we could then have enough time. Did a lot come out of that uh, that you needed to a, fix? Not a huge amount, uh, but certainly you know, some things came out of that, and, and particularly uh, you know, degrees of emphasis. Uh, so, so you know, see see things that matter to um, you know, the, the, the writers of the reports, and they're obviously trying to write about things that matter to the potential audience who might be buying the business. So, so we could get a focus on the key things that were important uh, and make sure we worked on those for yeah, really a six-month period before inviting them back again to do the final vendor due diligence. Uh, so we were, we were able to make the, the right changes. Uh, in, in, in most cases, it was you know, a continuum. Uh, we were able to make, make the right changes. So when we came to then you know, write the final due diligence reports, it, it, they, they, they reflected what we'd done to, to mm -hmm. respond to uh, items they'd highlighted. Why, why you, so you told three of the senior team outside of the board mm -hmm. Why did you why did you involve them and what was their role? 
So, yeah, key, key people who, who had a combination of uh, knowledge and the ability to deploy resource in the right place needed to know what was, uh, what was happening and what we, what we were doing. Uh, actually, in the, in, when we did the, the, you know, the dry run uh, due diligence, so that's at that stage, if, if those reports had produced uh, a long series of recommendations that needed fixed, we wouldn't have launched the process. So we, we were you know, fa fairly open at that stage as to you know, what we were trying to do, uh, that whether we were making sure that the business was in good shape so that when the time came, uh, we were able to launch. But when we finally, finally launched, it was a very tight, tight group. Mm. And so th those, those who really would be able to deploy the resources and, and who might reasonably be asked to be part of the presentation team when it came to uh, talking to potential, potential buyers. And were they? They were uh, part of the presentation. Yes, yeah, so we, we added, um, actually, in the end, we had two. We had the finance director, myself, uh, head of business development, and our COO. That, mm -hmm. that was our presentation. And each of, them, each of them had a role to play in that presentation? Yes. Uh, so we, again, tried to work out what the key drivers of the, of the business were and where the, where the value lay. So, yeah, business development, absolutely a key driver, making sure that you know, as people looked at projections, they could see there was a uh, you know, reasonable basis to uh, how those were built up and the new business assumptions that we'd made, and then to be able to talk to the person who'd been responsible for driving that new business in, in, into, the, into the firm. And then from an operational point of view, yeah, they'd seen the reports on the robustness of uh, yeah, the IT systems, uh, yeah, the, the process, but again, to talk to the guy who'd been responsible for making those operations fit together. Mm. Did you prepare them for the presentations? Yes. Did they go through <laughs> that sort of presentation training? Yes, I'm, I'm a very strong, a very strong believer in in, in, in presentation training, yeah. uh, and it was mostly around you know, the Q and A. So, so making sure that people were prepared for questions that uh, they, they'd covered it, uh, making sure they'd read the reports that uh, potential buyers had seen, uh, making sure they were aware of you know the, 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 the types of information that were available. So, alongside uh, our due diligence reports, uh, we you know, at a very early stage put together. Uh, a very comprehensive data room. Uh, so we wanted people to know what's in the data room, what can people be looking at. Uh, and our, our, our approach was also to be very, very open. Uh, so uh, yeah, the business was, I think, yeah, a certain amount of uh, uh, luck, of course, but if the business is in excellent shape, uh, you can uh, you know, look around to try and find something that uh, uh, yeah, is, is perhaps in less good shape that you can disclose. So we, we wanted to be in a position where there was no you know, small doubt or small question that any potential purchaser might find where they could say, we hadn't told them about it. Mm. Uh, so if, if there was uh, you know, something that um, could perhaps go wrong, we didn't think it would, we would just proactively disclose it to, to be absolutely on top. Was it a twin track process where you selling to trade and, and private equity? Well, it was Interesting in that, uh, although at a headline level all, all of the potential buyers were uh, trade, and more than half of those trade buyers were themselves backed by private equity. Yeah. Uh, so it was, yeah, we, we had private equity in, in the room alongside the you know, it wasn't. It was unlikely trade. to be a secondary. So it was very, very unlikely to be a secondary. Uh, I think the, the way the market uh, was, was sitting, you could see the consolidation coming. So not, not yeah. just Apex, who ended up as the final buyer, but you could see uh, a, a number of people had uh, you know, been 
buying businesses. Uh, and and our, our conclusion, I think the, the right conclusion, was that it was likely to be worth more to a consolidator who could get synergies out of it than it would be worth, particularly in the in the short to medium term, to a secondary to a secondary buyer. And I think that was the I think that was the right call. Yeah. So last question. You're now in your second private equity CEO role. What 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 do you th- what what do you take to that role from your IPIS experience? What's in the toolkit now that you didn't have back then? So yeah, almost five years of working alongside a private equity owner is is hugely valuable. I think uh, yeah, almost five years of having private equity firms as my clients is valuable yeah. as well because I can see a range of different perspectives. But yeah, understanding how the private equity owner uh, might think, uh, understanding the type of financial analysis and value analysis that uh, is appropriate to and appeals to a private equity owner. Uh, so, you, so you can see what you need to do to build value. Uh, you, you can see the type of analysis that tells you whether you are or not building, building value. Uh, and you can <coughs> prioritize. So a lot of running a business uh, is anyway around not doing things. So, uh, you know, there's, there's IPES um, and uh, Stanley Fleming both yeah, sh- share that uh, great opportunity that we've both had lots and lots of things that you can do. Uh, and in both cases, you've got to pick some of them and by definition, not do the others. Yeah. So what's the most valuable thing you can do? What should you focus on first? What should you make sure that you get done? And I've always been a great believer that it's much, much better to get two or three things done than it is to start 10 things and not finish any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if even if I look back to you know, RSM10 and uh, uh, you know, I, I inherited a business which had endless kind of initiatives and never finished anything. So trying hard to say there's a limited universe of things that we need to do, we know what the priorities are and we make sure we get them done, report on that properly, get the financial analysis in the right place so you really understand where the value is, and then build up momentum, same thing. Don't, don't you're, you're going to uh, aim to have the business in the best possible shape whenever a sale might come, uh, but you, you don't want that to be the peak that you could fall off the other side, you want that to be a continuum so there's something on the table for the next owner. Mm. Chris, that's been fantastic. Very good. I think we've been talking for about an hour. It's gone very quickly. (laughs) And we're going to do some filming now. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.